You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Five million people amidst a war zone are creating a new society based on principles that are near the hearts of many radicals in Australia. Welcome to AANES, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, formerly known as Rojava. Beginning on Thursday the 30th of September at midday to 1pm, join me, Joseph Toscano, for a 10-part series of conversations with members of a civil diplomacy centre in the city of Kwanzmizlo. Posts from Ennis, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, a flourishing radical experiment in direct democracy in the midst of a war zone. Launching as part of 3CR's Acting Up series on Thursday the 30th of September at midday on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Joseph Toscana, and with the able assistance of Kelly Whitworth and other members of the uh, 3CR staff, we have been able to make contact with the Civil Diplomacy Centre in northeast Syria and can bring this series of important interviews to our listeners at 3CR. This is a, the first of a series of interviews with a number of activists in the Autonomous Administration of northeast Syria. Uh, we are in contact with the Civil Diplomacy Centre in North East Syria, whose uh, job it is to communicate what's happening in this uh, small corner of the world to the rest of the world. And in this interview, we'll be speaking to Tekasan and his Kurdistan partner uh, in, the, in the Civil Diplomacy Centre, Farat. Hopefully, uh, over time, we'll begin to understand what's happening in this corner of the world and we will be able not only to assist them but actually implement what they're talking about in this country. Sure. Um, I need to make some technical points first. One is that our electricity is cutting out quite a bit. Uh, We have the internet on UPS. Um, so it's surviving. However, our climate control has switched off and it's 40 plus degrees here. So we right. uh, might just pass out at some point. <laughs> doing um, Yeah, the, the internet should stay up without electricity for the whole interview. Yeah, well, if it, uh, if it doesn't stay up, if it doesn't stay up, we can continue another week. Because I'm, 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 if um, Kelly, the producer, who's the technical whiz kid here, I'm just a, just a voice she will make sure that uh, it continues. But I think it's a great opportunity for the autonomous movement in northeast Syria to actually get a, a wide audience which is interested in the concepts of direct democracy, communitarianism, you know, um, uh, holding wealth in common, all those concepts which are important in your part of the world because we understand the revolutionary nature of what's happening there and the fact that you're trying to put principles which we saw during the Spanish Revolution, which we've seen in the libertarian movement, libertarian communist movement, libertarian socialist movement, in the anarchist movement, put those principles 
into practice in a war zone, which is an extraordinary uh, achievement. So when you're ready, we'll start. Yeah, I should probably start with what civil diplomacy does, because I, uh, what civil diplomacy is, is here for is to put you in contact with people who've been in this revolution for decades. Um, I myself have only been here for a year and a half, and I come from a positivist capitalist culture, so um, not necessarily the best person to to give answers to questions. Um, of course, I've, I've been through a lot here and also education systems here, so I can give some, um, some answers. Um, but yeah, what, exactly what you said is that we're very good at putting you in contact with people in the revolution that you need to be in contact with to investigate and understand more. So who established the Civil Diplomacy Unit? Uh, civil Diplomacy actually started about five years ago. Um, in terms of who established it, um, I don't know exactly the person whose idea it is. That, um, the, the society here is a very creative one. You know, obviously it's achieved incredible things by any standards. Um, and ideas, you know, if you say an idea to someone, the speed with which it will just happen is frightening sometimes. Um, and, you know, obviously a, a civil diplomacy in line with the ideology we have here, which is societies talking to other societies, not nation states, uh, obviously is part of the ideology here. Um, and yeah, for five years we've been slowly making contacts with other countries. Now it's now it's um, um, going much, much faster. And we've got contacts with people all around the world talking about Rojava from Thailand, Burma, Nigeria, England, USA, um, talking about a huge range of things. Right. Now, just to clarify things, what part of what, where is northeast Syria? Could you give us some boundaries and give us an idea of the landmass these these ideas have been put into practice? So, the revolution originally was called Rojava, um, and Rojava is a Kurdish word. Uh, it means west. Um, no, it means it means sunrise, doesn't it? Sunrise and west. So um, this was very much a majority Kurdish area 10 years ago. Uh, now, actually, we should be using the name ANES, which is the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria. Uh, and they've chosen an English name, supposedly, because that is uh, neutral in, in, you know, in the Middle East. Um, and that's a much bigger area and uh, uh, involves a lot more ethnic groups, religions and identities. And in fact, Anas may well be majority Arab ethnic group now. And certainly throughout the um, structures here, you see a wide range of ethnic groups as well. And of course, both men and women. Um, North and East Syria. Um, so we have borders above, we have Turkey which is not a friendly border, as you probably know. Um, below, we have a border with the Syrian regime, 
and actually the Syrian regime controls lots of parts of the city that I live in, which is Kamishlo. Um, some parts of Alhasika, which is the capital of Anas. Um, and, and this is, okay, we have peace pacts with um, these two neighbors at the moment, but they are unstable. Um, to the east, we have northern Iraq, which is part of Kurdistan um, and was a very friendly relationship. Um, now, because it has been controlled by the Barzani family, it is a, let's say, a normal capitalist oil state. It has become very friendly with Turkey. Turkey has military bases there. Now our relationship there is becoming difficult in terms of crossing that border, um, very difficult as well. Um, um, so actually, uh, our borders are not too friendly these days. I think we have about 4 million people in um, Anis. Um, lots of people have come here actually during the various wars because it has been one of the safer places in Syria. Um, the Yapige, the SDF have managed to create quite a safe environment relatively here. So we've got a lot of refugees flooding into Anis. Um, so the population has increased massively since uh, Wikipedia's last, you know, report on the last uh, number of people here, which I think is only a million or two million. Mm. Um, just a moment, my friend Havel Ferhat has arrived. Uh, so I'd like to introduce him at this point. Well. Okay, yeah. Come over in a moment. <laughs> yeah, no, no rush, no rush. Um, so, what landmass in terms of square kilometres would Annis have um, some control over, do you think? Oh, I don't know that. Let me just ask. Annis on half charm, isn't it? Charles said, Ubenji. So 450 kilometers. Ah, it's so, so 450 kilometers wide. Right. right. So it's a, it's a decent chunk of planet Earth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in terms of it's split into three cantons. Mm -hmm. Now, these are administrative terms. Uh, and as you know, there's. This is an autonomous administration, so we're talking about um, areas generally uh, ha uh, deciding for themselves how they run their affairs. And so you've got three cantons and you've got administrative bodies at canton level. Um, and then you've got um, smaller uh, administrative areas like villages, city neighborhoods, cities uh, and towns. And they have a lot of autonomy and they, they do very different things. Um, and uh, the, say, for example, the justice system, things, uh, when there's a conflict, uh, things are attempted to be resolved at the community level and they're very, very sizes. You know, the city I'm in, Kamishlo, is two to 300,000 people. Um, and if there's a conflict here, 
then uh, they use the traditional Kurdish system of um, the families on each side come together and they try to resolve it based on their knowledge of the people and uh, the emotional situation and they must work out rehabilitation but then that goes if that fails 70 percent of conflicts and disagreements are resolved that help that then goes to a higher level the canton level um where um it's it's a little bit more like um elected people come together and they try and resolve the situation and then there's a, a kind of annex level where people come together and try to resolve anything that didn't get resolved at the lower level. So you, you have these three cantons and you have the kind of hierarchy of geographical size um, and different kinds of solutions happening. Um, but at the lowest level, the um, intimate, local, autonomous democracy level, you have a lot of local, intimate um, problem solving because people know each other. And that's one of the critical parts of the ideology. Yeah. So, so do you think <clears throat> there's a critical mass in terms of this um, method of uh, self-government? A critical mass in terms of, of people. people? Yes, you said before that, you know, it's people knowing each other. I mean, it's... Yeah, yeah, I mean, this, this is where my understanding of of what's called bottom-up democracy has come. Mm. Because I never understood bottom-up democracy before I came here. I read about it, but I thought, you know, bottom-up, what does that mean? People are electing representatives. They no. can't make every decision in the society because that would be a, a impossible physically for everyone to make every decision. So if they elect a representatives, how is that different from European democracy anyway? Um, and I think the key that I've seen here from being in the society is that everybody knows each other. Everybody talks to each other. I, for example, know a lot of the elected delegates. I know a lot of the people who are temporarily in charge of the various things just from being in this society because it's smaller and because life is much more varied here, even for a shopkeeper. And there is no cultural reason for a poorer person not to go to a richer person's house or from a foreigner to go to uh, a poor person's house or a local person's house. Everyone mixes much more here. And the variety of, of activity in someone's life is huge in comparison to the kind of capitalist, positivist model. Uh, so everyone knows each other. So, so, um, so you're basically saying it's about participation at every level. I mean, democ direct democracy is based on the concept of participation. You, you just don't put a, a, a ballot in a ballot box every three to four years and elect a representative to make decisions for you for that period. You're, are you saying that the cantons at the various levels make decisions and then elect or appoint delegates to coordinate those decisions? Or is there an overriding authority? Um, what I'm saying is that because of the interaction in society itself, the society itself becomes a decision-making organism and the elected delegates become powerless to make decisions 
So uh, the, the elected delegates who are very much fundamentally connected in this society and friends with everyone on this smaller scale are very aware of the uh, decisions and consciousness that is happening within that society. And so their role is more to harvest those decisions, summarize and state them. They don't actually make the decisions. Yeah, I understand that. We understand the difference between delegation and representation. That's what I'm interested in following up. The fact that we've got four million people uh, living productive lives on the basis of delegation, not representation. Because, I mean, that's, I mean, it's, it's a, what you'd call an advanced form of democracy. I mean, not representative democracy is just basically a single cell organism as far as democracy is, is concerned. But what you're talking about is, see, ultimate power rests with the base. It doesn't rest with the delegate. The delegate basically is, has a coordinating uh, or does the delegate make decisions? Well, let me give an example. I mean, stories are best, I think, mm. for this sort of thing. So, um, about a month ago, the co-chair in Commissioner, because we always have uh, dual leadership, has to be at least one woman, uh, and, and then usually a, a man is the co-chair. Um, so one of the co-chairs decided to increase the oil price by a factor of four. Um, and, but there was no idea in society that this would be a good thing or, or that it was wanted. The next day, uh, people marched in the street, but, you know, a relatively small percentage of people um, in disagreement. And the following day, the idea was revoked and the oil price returned to its normal level. Um, and, and this is an example of, of uh, a delegate thinking that it is their role to make decisions. And then, you know, finding out that the people will prevent that. Mm. Um, so, technically, the delegates have power to make decisions. It depends on the decision. Like, for example, we have curfews here. So the, the delegates have to decide when and for how long those curfews are based on the statistics coming in from the hospitals about cases of COVID, um, whether it's going to be one week or two weeks, for example. Now, um, as my revolutionary friend said, these are socialist curfews which basically means you don't have to do them if you decide that you need to break the curfew. So when I went out during curfew and the police stopped me, the police came over and asked me why I was breaking curfew. And I explained that I was worried about my friends. I, I was concerned that they were becoming very depressed and I needed to go and see them to make sure um, they were gonna be okay. And the police, who are ideologically and politically trained, they are sp supposed to understand the ideology, they're supposed to implement it, and their own sense of morality and justice during their work. Um, they said to me, okay, we'll, we'll drive you there. And uh, when I got there, uh, the police officer, the Asaish, as we call him here, gave me his personal phone number, you know, not a police um, 
police general phone number, his personal phone number, to come and pick me up and, and take me back when I needed it. Um, and this is an example of the difference between subjective and objective. When a rule is made in a nation state system, which is positivist, um, and we probably need to talk about what positivist means or how Abdullah Ocalan and the revolution he talks about positivism. It's a, a rule across, in the case of the UK, for example, 65 million people made by people who have no connection with those communities. It's an objective rule that will be forced uh, with, with violence if people break it. Here, um, a rule is more like a guide. It is something you should think about that your society has suggested you should think about when you're, when you're going about your life. And it is something that a police officer will consider subjectively according to the situation you're in. And often it doesn't need to be obeyed because the specific situation you're in uh, means that it's it's a good idea for it not to be obeyed. So the concept of law and rule here is very different. However, I mean, if, if the community tries to resolve the situation of a woman being uh, beaten, by her husband, for example, and the community decides to ring the alarm bell and call the police, then you absolutely will get an armed response unit of women coming in and solving the situation directly and physically with violence if necessary. Um, and then taking those two people off, the, the woman to make sure she is safe and looked after, and the man will be taken off and whilst it's not, and you can see wonderful videos of this online. Whilst the man doesn't go into a prison, he does go into a small room that he can't leave. He will be kept in that room. And you can see the videos of these really, mm, really look, strong women. Look, I'm, I'm interested in possibly doing an hour just on the justice system and maybe some time on the policing system. But I want to go back to the central aspect of the society you're part of and that's the process via which decisions are made now I understand you're saying although delegates who are elected can make decisions those decisions can be overturned by the base is that correct? Yes Right and, and that's in the three cantons or the different cantons have different mechanisms by which they make decisions? Uh, I'm just going to translate that for my friend to see if he has any more information on it than I do. Thanker. Ah, the Jose, first, Chawa Biryaren, not Sek Canton here, Gisera, or Cabano, Heger Redoberi, Camisto, Biryartike. Mm-hmm. 
و اگر آو چرا سرنم که می‌دانی Okay, so um, actually a lot of the things you will hear, obviously, sorry, not obviously, but we have a very heterogeneous system here, and that is because of the autonomy, uh, things are done in different ways uh, throughout Anes. Um, however, my friend Hevel Ferhat here says that um, actually this is quite uniform across the three cantons. If people do not like a decision that's been made by the, um, the governing bodies, they can go through their local communes. So each, each neighborhood, village and so on has a commune and they can go to that. That will then go up to the Tevdem level and then other levels. So the democratic movement of the people, this is what Tevdem means. Right, okay. Mm -hmm. so they can, they've, got a, they've got an authority structure to go up through there. They also have the legal right of protest, which is what was used when the oil price was increased. Um, and that's that's incredibly effective here, as we've seen. Um, and this is these these systems are quite uniform across the three countries. Right, that's good. As you realise, um, <clears throat> the ability of rulers to exercise power as you, depends on inequalities in power and wealth. We've looked at the power situation and how power can be shared in autonomous regions. What's the position on wealth in these cantons? So the difference between rich and poor is very, very different here. It's very, very much 
legs. Ah, saying. Okay, so this is this is a really interesting answer, and it demonstrates the um, the really different paradigm here. Um, so you have previous revolutions which have attempted to solve the problem between rich and poor, and they've done it with law. You know, they've they've intentionally uh, redistributed wealth. Here, we don't have that attitude. We uh, uh, require society to do that. So um, I went to a presentation by the PYD. This is the Democratic Party. That is the political arm of this revolution. And they, they give an hour talk and then they answer questions. And at the, at the end of this, uh, there were two questions. The first one was a woman who stood up and said, my family is wealthy and we can still afford sugar, even though it's, it's very expensive now, but my neighbors are poor and they can't afford sugar. What should I do? And the second person to stand up was a local farmer. And he said, um, I, I cannot water my crops properly because the PYD has made a law saying I can only have one water well. What should I do? And the representative or delegate, I should say, um, maybe um, from the PYD answered both questions the same. She said that you need to increase your friendships with the people around you. Now, uh, this is the way that the PYD always answers questions. She said, you know, we're not here to solve your problems. You have to stop looking at us like people who are going to intervene in your lives and your society and solve your problems for you. We're not going to do that. That's not our role as revolutionaries. Um, and of course, when the farmer increases his friendship with the people around him, uh, he's going to share his tools. He's going to share his water. It's, it's a way of saying collectivization. Um, the, the, woman who uh, didn't understand how she solves the problem of rich and poor. If your friends are poor, you help them in exactly the same way that, uh, to give another example, the revolution uh, is slowly abolishing money, but it's not passing a law and putting in people in prison if they dare to use money. No, that's a, that's a different way of doing things. What it's doing when you go down to the souk, the markets in Kamishloi, you see that a lot of people are not using money anymore. And it's because it's their friends getting things and you don't charge your friends for services. Um, and so money slowly abolishes as communities become smaller, more intimate and more based on friendship. And so the way, as my friend said, the way that the problem with rich and poor is solved is one, we don't make 
cultural divisions between rich and poor. It's, it's perfectly acceptable for poor and rich people to be together. They don't view people as rich and poor. They increase the friendships between them, which is possible because of this. They don't have the cultural divisions, so the friendships are possible. And of course, wealth naturally redistributes heterogeneously where it can and where it needs to. Um, I happen to know one of the very rich families here. There is a Supreme Court judge in the family and the next government minister in the family. Uh, I go around their house and their house is empty, not because they're specifically ideological, but because people just don't have things in their house here. I go around to like the poorest family I know, which are very poor. And okay, their, their house is not as close to the center, but basically it's bare rooms, just like the rich person's house, with mats around there and lots of people in it all the time. So even though the rich family are richer, they, um, they don't actually live in a way culturally here, not ideologically, but culturally here, they don't actually live in a way that is substantially different from the poorest family. Uh, except, of course, they have um, the knowledge that they're safer because they have money, which is significant, of course. Um, and that richest family uh, has lost a son in the fighting. Um, in order to protect themselves, they're staying here and believing in revolution like the poor family are. And the poor family goes to the rich family's house. And so it, because of that, it's very much more difficult for a ruling class to develop because mm. the smaller scale and the interaction without cultural divisions, just the concept of cultural division isn't, isn't here like it is in places positivist places like, like Europe. Uh, we're halfway or midway between a conversation with activists in northeast Syria from the Autonomous Administration Zone. Uh, this is uh, Dr Joseph Toscana and with the able assistance of Kelly Whitworth and other members of the uh, 3CR staff, we have been able to make contact with the Civil Diplomacy Centre in northeast Syria and can bring this series of important interviews to our listeners at 3CR. Could you exp explain who the YPD are and their role in these autonomous regions? So, Persoia, PYD, Tien, or Chikikin? PYD? Partido Chair. 
kapit. Ah, bilirsin. Bu bir hamu partiydi. Ne kusurken? Parti koalisyon. Ne kusur? Okay, so this is the first democratic party um, and its role is to think ideologically about how the society is developed uh, in a practical way, what the practice is doing. Um, its, its other role is to negotiate or maybe negotiate is the wrong word, let's say talk um, with uh, other political parties which have different ideas and try to solve problems. So now, what I mean by other political parties must be understood that this, this ANES is a lot more fragmented politically than people might realise from outside. So we have NKSA. These NKSA are a nation state Capitalist party, and you can say capitalism, not just socialism. Capitalism. Um, uh, okay, so they they say they're socialist, but they're they're, <laughs> they're a nation state system. They want centralized political power for themselves. Now, uh, the PYD. Uh, their role is also to, to talk with these people to try and solve that situation. Um, obviously, here we reject the concept of a centralised nation-state. Um, the PYD ideologically are against that. So they try to uh, solve these problems uh, by talking to these people. Um, and of course, they do, as I said, they travel around the communities and talk at a very ideological, emotional, cultural level of how people should be, but not physically, directly solving problems. Mm. When you speak about ideology, where have, are these ideas something that have um, fermented in these regions or? Is there an ideological basis to them? Well, that's a good question. Um, so, Abdul Archilan has written a lot of books on this. Uh, in 2003, the party announced it was going to develop a new ideology. It was Marxist-Leninist, and then I think in 2005, about then, Abdul Ochlan produced a very deep uh, new ideology based on something called genealogy, the science of law. And then obviously in 2011-12, uh, northeast Syria went into revolution uh, with that ideology. Um, so before I mentioned that the justice system was using the traditional Kurdish method that the families should come together. Now, that's interesting because a lot of the way people are here is the way that people were. You could say that actually the ideology that's been developed 
is to protect what is here already. So there hasn't been a cultural revolution. There is really just a formalization of the way the um, Middle Eastern society and especially Kurdish culture is in order to give it a name and say, this is how we want to live and how, and so we can protect it. Now, obviously the role of women has significantly changed and that in itself is worthy of the word revolution. But all the things that we've talked about already, the decision-making processes, they haven't really um, changed. Um, and one could say that looking at Abdullah Ocalan's works, he goes through the history of the development of positivism in Europe, Europe for example, starting 5,000 years ago with the Sumerian priests, and certainly talking a lot about the 14 and 1500s and the development of um, what, what we call science in Europe, but actually it's really just physical science, i.e. positivism. Um, how that has radically changed European culture and society into what it is now, which is um, where things like concepts of morality uh, and emotional intelligence are not acceptable. Uh, they're, they're rejected by society. You can only produce physical evidence and physical ideas. And people are assumed to be purely self-interested. You know, uh, so you could say that the revolution happened in Europe, not in Syria. Well, that's right. There's a, there's a long... Uh, but it's really... Mm. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry? Um, so really, the, the books of Abdullah are the fundamental basis of the ideology here. And of course, Murray Bookchin as well was very influential. The American coming from Vermont lived a lot of his life in New York neighborhoods, which were a lot smaller and intimate, but now have been destroyed. Um, not, not physically, I mean the concept of a small, intimate neighborhood is gone. Um, and you can also look or at uh, the role of women, which is, is fundamentally important here. So actually before the revolution, for decades before the revolution, you see uh, women incredibly organized coming up through the party and the Kurdish resistance here. Um, and then in 2004, it's fundamentally based on genealogy, this science of women. Um, genealogy is the equivalent of Marxism. So what Marxism is to socialism, genealogy is to the democratic confederalism here. It's, it's not It's not. we should have women's rights in our society. It's not that at all. It's the, the concept of women is the basic fundamental concept of our whole society. So uh, you could say that we are looking to give men equal rights in a society designed based on women women's ideas and women's culture. Um, so it really is fundamental. And we should talk about the involvement and the concept of, of women. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm sure we could, we could devote a whole hour to that. I'm just trying to get yeah. just trying to get an idea, to give people an idea of what's actually happening there and how it's organised. Now, do, what role does culture play? You said you have a huge influx of refugees who are coming to the area because it's safe. So is there a dominant culture or uh, all of the cultures kind of coexist or do they intermesh? So there's, there's two 
timeframes to talk about here and compare between them. Uh, before the revolution and the situation before and the situation now. Uh, the situation before, um, the Syrian regime was in control and the Arab ethnic group was very much in control of everything. So, So we have a situation now which is based on the democratic nation, Netewa Democratic. Uh, again, coming very much from Deloitte's book, books. Um, you you look at the uh, administrative structures, and you will have uh, intentionally uh, members from each ethnic group working together in the leadership situations, and also a mixture of of men and women. Um, <laughs> Um, so, you know, when, when the revolution started, it was much more fundamentally coming out of the Kurdish ethnic group. And of course, um, the Arab ethnic groups uh, were fearful of this. Now, um, you, you can see that the revolution is, has done a hell of a lot of work there now. There is an enormous number of Arab people becoming cadre, revolutionary cadre. This is where you, you uh, make an oath to be part of the revolution for the rest of your life. And you agree not to marry, uh, not to drink, not, and you, you, you do whatever the revolution asks for you. So we've got thousands of Arabs joining that now. Um, the because you know the ideology here is all about mixing ethnic groups and proving that that can work. So they really have gone, really, really gone for it, and and it's being tried in fire now. They're they're um, bringing all ethnic groups into the administration, all ethnic groups into the military defence of Anas. So the the Syrian Defence Forces, the SDF or Kasudeh as they're called here. Um, this is uh, an example of the way that society is, is organized generally. Ethnic groups, and in fact villages, towns, and so on, you can organize your own militia. And it, certainly at the beginning of the revolution and still now, it's quite, quite a loose thing. Um, and the SDF is really 
for coordination of that. So you have Arab uh, ethnic group militia, you have Syriac, have their own uh, army, you have the um, Kurdish armies as well, and they coordinate together to protect Anis from threats through the SDF. And obviously ISIS was one of those major threats and all of these ethnic groups coordinated together. And as the commander of the SDF said, um, one of the interesting cultural effects on that was uh, that our blood mixed because we went to the battlefield, all these ethnic groups to reject ISIS fighting side by side caused the concept of the differences between the ethnic groups to reduce very much. Um, there are still, so for example, there's a village just outside Kamishlo and the village is split into a Kurdish area and an, and an Arab area. And I drive past it quite often during the week. And of course we are doing still a lot of work to cause that sort of situation to change. Um, but what you see in Kamishlo at the moment uh, is, is communities of, like the one that I live in, which are Kurds and Arabs living in the same community together. You know, when the, the Western press reports, they only report when there's a conflict. And if the conflict is between two different ethnic groups, whether it was about ethnicity or not, they're like, oh, there's conflict between Arabs. What they don't recall is the enormous, in comparison, and certainly relatively, is the enormous amount of success in, in living together and making decisions together. You know, so it's usually an Arab and a Kurd in every part, in, in, the, in the justice, in, in the administrative decision making, in all these sorts of areas. You, it's incredibly mixed. And that's not reported by the Western press. No. So the, mm. the success comparison to 10 years ago is enormous. So how have you been able, as an autonomous region, been able to deal with um, uh, religious differences within the cantons? So, um, uh, Farhat is saying that um, the people believe in the revolution. And of course, the, the ideology of the revolution is coexistence. Um, and so there are not really conflicts between the different religions. He's also saying, saying there is a body, uh, the Committee for um, Religion Together, um, which is, is uh, looking at making sure these things are understood and coexistence is um, promoted. Um, there are also wonderful movements like uh, Democratic Islam, which we at the Civil Diplomacy Centre are hosting meetings with a lot at the moment as part of our work. 
Um, and that's coming along very nicely. Very wonderful people developing uh, democratic Islam. Um, in my experience, I touched down in Suleimania in Iraq, and then I came across Simalka Pass into northern East Syria a year and a half ago. Um, it's very often that when you sit and talk to people here, the first thing that they'll say to you is religion is not a problem. Um, it's not the competitive thing that it can be in other places. Um, and so often you will see Christians and Muslims and Alawis and all the other religions just sitting side by side with no reason to be aggressive towards each other. Um, and so the, the culture and the understanding of what a religion is and why it is, is, is completely different from positivism. Uh, that is, you know, the Western modern, modernist world. Uh, so, I mean, that, that side of things is going extremely well. There seems to be, I mean, even in Al Hasike, uh, there are ISIS communities. And often the distinction is made between cultural religion and political religion. Political religion, um, I think you can probably guess by the names, it's when religion is used for political means, for violence, for control, and this sort of thing. Cultural religion is, is, in my experience here, something very sweet, very positive. Uh, this civil diplomacy sector, for example, is guarded by Arab Muslims. And they're, they're such a sweet uh, bunch of people, the police down there, that, that guard us all day. Um, and. You know, I sit sit with them on the roof sometimes, when they're on roof duty, and sometimes they pray, and they talk about it in such a, a lovely way that it's such a positive part of their lives. Um, and the, the idea of interpreting or using something that could be violent about their religion is just not in their consciousness at all. And that's my experience with right. people. Do you have? A civil service in terms of people who actually um, provide services for the actual autonomous regions, say like health, education, or is every canton responsible for providing that to its citizens? Wow, you're testing my courage here. <laughs> I'm going to try to figure out. <laughs> well, well, look, uh, we, we want people to uh, we want people to understand what a significant things are happening in northeast Syria, and I think it's one thing seeing people brandishing some guns; it's a different thing seeing people coexist and live and create a new mechanism of living, a new mechanism of decision making power, a new mechanism of sharing wealth, and that's what. In this first interview, I, I'm interested in exploring. Sure. Um, uh, there are very uh, very The the Nasla Pertanya, Sazinheya, Jibo, Reverberi Beriatike, Poeref Sazi, Civil Service, Dike. Laura, as I have everybody, basically, because in Nakhbashani, you know, civil service, check it. 
Dans la mesure que les Québécois de Britannia et ça c'est je vois pratique Non, le word chawa. Thank you very much for your time. All the best to all you there. And hopefully, as we develop this relationship with our audience, we will be able to be of some assistance. Thank you very much. It was really good.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.